out um, on behalf of SCAPE, the Student Coalition for Asian Pacific Empowerment, and um, our organization, Asian Pacific Cinema Association, as well as the Asian Pacific American Student Assembly. Um, so uh, with us tonight, we have Professor Lon, um, who will be conducting the Q&A uh, questions with um, Mailed It's director, um, Adele Pham, and um, a special guest, uh, Lisa. From the California Healthy Nail Salon Collaborative, who we saw a bit of uh, in the health section of the film. See all the Vietnamese people talking about their health? That's where she, well, that's their Northern California. But I'll let California we'll, work. Yeah, we'll talk about LA. Um, yeah. So, um, again, my name is Lan, and I'm really happy to be here. I followed Adele's work for a while. I was a part of VIF, so I saw Parallel Adele. Oh, and that was a while ago, and so, um, and I know Lisa from uh, organizing work in LA. Um, but just a little bit about myself, um, I am in the Cinema and Media Studies Department. Uh, I'm also a, a liaison for the Council on Diversity and Inclusion. Um, and then my other day job is that I'm a part of the Critical Refugee Studies Collective. So I work on refugee uh, histories and stories. I'm Vietnamese American myself. I'm a part of the 1975 um, immigration uh, wave that first came. So all of the stories in this movie really spoke to me. I also um, like karaoke very much, but I don't do my nails. So don't look at my nails. <laughs> Um, but I'm so glad to be here. I think there's so much to talk about. Um, and so one of the things that really drew me to this film is the story about refugees and the story of surviving um, about the American dream, about war and displacement, and the kind of polls that I thought were really um, striking about this particular film is the thematics of empowerment, refugee empowerment, and refugee um, um, resistance. So those are kinds of the two themes that I wanted to see if we could talk about. Um, but I do have, as a lot of Vietnamese Americans, I think, have a story about nails. Uh, be, be, because most of my family w were also nail salons. I have friends who uh, are part of the industry. I have... Um, I have a story about how I grew up in the 1990s and somebody asked me to be their nail model for their exams. But as, um, because we were all refugees working um, or trying to make it in a working class neighborhood, it was mostly me translating and providing answers mm. for the person taking the exam in order for them to pass. And then that's how I got my first hundred dollar <laughs> check. I mean, but it's smart. It's it's a part. It's a part of my story. It's a part of our history, and it is a an, an economy of intimate labor, and it is very familiar to me. So, um, but with that story, um, let me see. I wanted to ask because I heard you talk, Adele, on Australian radio um, about refugees oh, wow. today. I know. Okay, I forgot well, I had done that. I know. The CBS Australia. Right. Yeah. So <laughs> I 
try to do, do some homework Good job. here. Yeah. Um, but I like the way that you talk about refugees, Vietnamese-American refugees in particular, but then also um, updating it so that we're talking about refugees today. Mm. And so I wonder if um, you could talk a little bit more about that. Um, do you think that Vietnamese-Americans are are um, trying to think about these stories and how they intersect with um, stories of refugees today um, and the American, um, in our American politics, or the American political climate today as it relates to refugees. I mean, that's a thorny issue, right? Because a lot of older generation Vietnamese people and these kind of neoliberal Vietnamese who are closer to my age vote Republican. Right. And they're conservative. Right. Um, a lot of times their parents came during the Reagan administration. At that time, the U.S. wanted labor at a, you know, a lower cost. So, right, we don't analyze those things when we take apart our own history. And then for Cotuan's generation, I mean, they really resented Kennedy. So, right. for, you know, we go on and on about um, the Vietnam War and, you know, all the political agents involved in that. But coming out of that whole thing, and not seeing how your refugee struggle connects to other refugees is something that I think about. And so it's important for me to contextualize it in this film, you know, because I think sometimes um, Vietnamese second generation are not political enough, you know, because right. we're, comfor we're comfortable enough to not have to be. And also culturally, I mean, we come from communism, right? You don't want to let anyone know what you're thinking politically. A lot of Vietnamese people don't vote, period, you know. Like, my dad's not a Republican, but he didn't vote for Obama. I mean, it was Oregon, it didn't matter. Um, <laughs> and, that, you know, that's another, right. <laughs> so many conversations. Yeah. But, um, you know, Nails is kind of a springboard for me, right? Um, and as you know, <laughs> there's so many Vietnamese voices kind of your own, included um, writing about your experience between the two worlds. And I think about that a lot because our parents' generation is dying you know, um, and we certainly don't have the same relationship with communism or with Vietnam. Right, and I think the landscape has uh, really changed. I think of um, second, third generation Vietnamese Americans who are much more politically activist um, um, and who want to um, get our stories out, their stories of empowerment and resistance. And I, so I see that, but then I also see a very conservative strain in Vietnamese American politics as well, especially in Orange County, um, where you know we get our nails done and we eat a lot of pho and all that, right? So it's very close to me too. Me. But can't I see that? All of that. I just came from Garden Grove. <laughs> You're so lucky. Um, but so. Am I? No. <laughs> No, sorry, sorry. I know, it's a local thing. Um, but so, yeah, um, I think there's so much to say about what your film is trying to say about this history and the community mm. um, and also about race relations between African Americans and Vietnamese Americans. And mm. so you trace that history mm -hmm. of Mantrap, the name I love because it's <laughs> unusual. But so you trace that history and then you make a point of saying that it needs to get better. Um, do you, have you gotten any feedback on that oh, yeah. particular storyline from Vietnamese Americans or other people of color who have seen your film? 
Mm, you mean about the chemicals? Or well, about, about the relationships between African Americans? Oh, and yeah. Well, that's. I mean, that's kind of the main reason I made the film. I met Oliver and Charlie early on. Um, so it was after I found out about the Tippy story, but I was always mm. curious. Um, and where? How did the Vietnamese nail salon get to the black neighborhood? And I was talking to Mike Vo, and um, who you see in the film, and he said, "Oh, well, you know, my mom's business partner is African American. Do you want me, do you want to talk to her?" And he gave me Olivet's contact information. I went to Moreno Valley. You know, we got on like a barn on fire. You know, I'm gonna go see her day after tomorrow before I go back to oh, New York. Nice. So, I mean, that is just not what you see portrayed in media. It's always an acrimonious relationship between um, the black client day. and the Vietnamese nail tech, you know? So I think that was a very important history to, that to come out in this film and, you know, kind of set me out on the journey to tell it because this is, like, really deep. We need to hear this story right now. Yeah. And how can we get back to those kinds of relationships? Right? And what has the reception been for your film? <clears throat> Um, people love it. I mean, it was on PBS. It was the highest stream film of the America Reframe series, you know. Mm -hmm. I don't know. It's like, I think there's been some resistance from uh, Vietnamese Americans of a certain age. We're coming into this age where we're woke, of course, and um, we're telling our stories in our own voices, right? And I think, you know, there was some kind of white savior thing that they felt about Tippy. They don't like Angela Johnson. Um, but generally, no, people think it's the bomb. You know, that's, that's been my impression when I've screened it with people. And it's really like with young people in the college setting who don't like Angela Johnson, that's been a really interesting conversation to unpack after the film. You know, like I kind of leave it up in the air for you to decide. Right. Angela Johnson's the comedian that you begin with. So they wanted you to be more critical. Of yeah. Even though I'm different. from the community and I'm telling our story, it's not some one from outside telling it. So, you know, right. it, who knows, you know? Right. Um, so, because we're at a film school, because I teach film, and I have a very special interest in documentaries, can you, tell a can you talk a little bit about why this particular genre, um, as opposed to any other kind of format or form? It just has always spoken to me. I used to want to be a writer, right? But I mean, I've always read nonfiction. Like I, I'm just drawn to nonfiction more than fiction in general um, from a pretty early age. And I live in Portland. Um, we live next to the second run movie theater, you know, so you get all the movies for like a dollar fifty double feature. Right. And that's where I really saw art house documentaries for the first time. I'm like, oh, what is this? This isn't like news. This is something else, right? So documentaries that affected me early, uh, Crumb, about mm -hmm. Robert Crumb. Um, there's a handful of other ones, and I knew what I was seeing, right? So I knew that the, the craft of documentary filmmaking was out there. And I, when I was undergraduate, like, three chip cameras weren't even on the market, I don't think. I took, I, like, minored in video art, I think. <laughs> I went to Mills. Yeah. Um, as an open. And, you know, I was making documentaries then, too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and yeah, I, I when I decided that I wanted to st make a film, it was about my father. Mm -hmm. We went back to Vietnam, and a bunch of stuff went down, you know. And I put that to the side, and um, I went to film school. And that Parallel Dell came out of that film school experience, right? And then that got into a lot of festivals, and that gave me the sense, like, oh, okay, I'm good at this. I can be a freelance da da da. And I've been doing that ever since. 
then trying to get film, getting funding for films has been difficult. You know, that's one reason why this one took so long. But um, the passion is there. Yeah. How long did it take you? Six. Six, six years. Six years. Yeah. Oh, and and yeah. 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 Um, I mean, I have so much more footage. We can get into that afterwards, too, like what I'm doing with the rest of the footage. What, yeah. So what are you doing with the rest of the footage? Um, I just applied to Sundance New Frontiers um, for a virtual reality nail salon that I'm producing with a VR producer cool. named Michaela Holland, who's half Filipino. Mm -hmm. And um, she actually went to UCI, but she's a little hot shot. Like, she's, pro I think she's Gen Y, and she's already won an Emmy. I'm like, okay, come here on my team. <laughs> But I have, I've had this idea for a long time, and we've been doing these pop-up nail salons with Kelvin, getting them mm -hmm. sponsored by Jellish, you know. So that the, 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 we've done it in physical space. So it was my idea to create a virtual space where we did a scan of Solida Salon, and we're able to film scenarios that put you in the, the place of either the nail tech mm -hmm. or the customer, you know, in mm -hmm. good scenarios and bad scenarios, and also just using surround sound with the sounds of the salon and the stories and weaving the right. stories in with the din of the nail salon and then doing yeah. like Easter egg like items like scanning the tools so you could actually manipulate them like I don't know if, how, mm -hmm. if anyone's done VR but like the escape room VR rooms yeah so that's really interesting and then with the rest of the footage like okay. it, the space um, will allow you to just upload 2D content to it, you know, so it won't be 3D, but you'll be in 3D space if you're wearing the goggles, right? And you're watching yeah. it on, like, the TV in the nail salon. Or maybe you do karaoke, you know, and then you, <laughs> yeah, right? And then you see Vietnamese nail salons in Germany because right. I have so much footage, right? Wow. Yeah. yeah, so I like the international scope yeah. that you bring into the film. And so it sounds like you're going to take it one step further with the VR version mm -hmm. of um, the nail salon pop-up. But so I just just going back to the question of documentary, and then I have a question for both you and Lisa as well. And then after that, we can open it up to questions. But um, the documentary form um, really allows the story of all these subjects and all these voices to c unfold and come to life. And I think your documentary does that. Um, and what I also like about documentaries is the use of the voiceover. Um, and I think that your story, your personal story, uh, making it a personal and political work is what also drew me in. Um, and your voiceover, your story about your father and your mother, and I, I thought that was all very affecting. And so I think this, the, your VR project sounds like it's allows the the person to participate to step into the shoes of that subject and that I think that's what documentaries do and allow you to kind of re live and relive these moments um, yeah I think of it as an empathy chamber right so I, I see that connection but I, I do want to say that uh, one of the things that I really enjoyed about your the, this film then is the way in which you tie the personal and the political together through your own voiceover and your own story. And I, I agree that, because you said in the Australian radio interview, that this is the right time. It's a good time to talk about refugees and immigrants and to really take over the platform and mm -hmm. uh, get our stories heard. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, I just enjoyed it. Thank you. 
So, but for Lisa, um, because Lisa is so, uh, was so much, it has been so much a part of the California Healthy, Healthy Meal Collaborative, or the collaborative, you, you, we call it a group. Um, you've been so much a part of this force and th these organizing efforts. Can you tell us a little bit about the collaboration that you've had with Adele about this film and a little bit about the collaborative as well? Yeah, um, so the collaborative has been around since 2005 and um, we started out out of a health clinic in Oakland. So Asian Health Services is in um, Oakland Chinatown and uh, many years ago, you know, Vietnamese health outreach workers are going out into the community and doing health education on cancer screenings. And in doing community health work, they go to where the community's at to provide the health education. And so they were going to, the Vietnamese health outreach workers were going to nail salons. And so the nail salon workers would, um, were coming back and saying, you know, we are also getting some health issues and we think it's from the products that we're working with every day, you know, 10 hours a day, 12 hours a day, up to seven days a week. Can you look into it? So it actually, that's how the organization started, um, realizing, we realized that there was this health e epidemic that was going on because of, that was specifically impacting Vietnamese manicurists. And um, there were many different strategies that the collaborative implements now to address those issues. So um, through the policy strategy, so, you know, realizing, like in the film talking about how a lot of the products are not regulated um, well enough, you know, on the federal level, on the state level, and so basically any ingredient can be put in, almost any, any ingredient can be put into these products. Same with any of your personal care products, mm -hmm. shampoo, lotion, mm -hmm. everything, right? Um, and um, at the heart of our work is our organizing, so working with the community, working um, with the nail salon workers and owners to actually be um, build their own capacity and build their own power to talk about the issues that are impacting them, to talk with legislators and policymakers, and to actually provide input and um, direction on the work that the collaborative is doing. So they have been very critical. Um, our members are really important in, um, in speaking to folks in Sacramento and Washington, D.C. Um, and we also work with the National Research, Research Advisory Committee. So the nail industry is changing so much. Um, when I started doing this work 11 years ago, there were no gel nails. And in the past five, 10 years, it has exploded. And so the products are evolving, changing all the time. I mean, now I'm getting targeted Instagram ads. Um, I'm like, how did I even sign up for this? You know, on like this, like new products that are coming out all the time. And so we actually have a scientific advisory committee of really amazing um, experts that understand the chemicals and help guide us on the products, on the ingredients that are most toxic. So right now it's actually evolved beyond the toxic trio. So formaldehyde, dibutyl phthalate, and toluene, yes, you know, but actually most of the big um, manufacturers don't, don't have the toxic trio anymore. So we, we go to our scientific advisory committee. So what else, what else is on this list? Because what we're finding now, too, is that they're getting replaced with regrettable substitutes, with, with ingredients that are worse than dibutyl phthalate, formaldehyde, or toluene. And that's like a whole other side of chemistry. That might not even smell. Right, right. And so, and then gels. Like what, you know, our advisors actually said, 
gels are still considered an yeah. artificial nail. Yeah. Which is the same category as an acrylic. Yeah. Right? And so, that you know, there's a lot of... The research side of it is also important. And again, making sure that our members, the community is a part of the research. They are the experts. They're the one who are using the products every day. And so um, being able to guide and talk about, you know, what they're using, what's popular, and um, being able to connect and know that they are a part of this work as well. And so um, our work is always evolving and want and needing to shift with the industry sh changing um, and so that's kind of where we're, what our organization does. And what was mm -hmm. your other question? How would, how did you, um, how was the collaboration like oh, between yeah. you and Adele about this film? I want to say it was 20, 2014, maybe? Um, I don't remember Adele well, or the Bo, other Adele. Uh, uh, so I... I actually uh, got into the film thinking it was going to be about the chemicals and about workers' rights because an associate of ours who's also an activist and educator, Julie Vo, we were at a progressive Vietnamese gathering in New York City and she brought it up. I'm like, oh, that's really interesting to me, you know, because you only see the other side at that time of the nail salon, of them being, you know, shady characters essentially, you know, which I portray in the film. So that's what drew me to go on Facebook and be like, hey, does anyone know any nail experts in uh, Southern California? And that's how I got hooked up with Kim Pham um, mm -hmm. because she worked for Nails, did work for Nails Magazine. So, um, I mean, oh, I think I just right. started emailing. Uh, and you also got in touch with Kelvin? Kelvin through Kim Pham. Well, because I, that I did the interview with Mike Bow and Kelvin was there, like, I never got the footage, but him there filming me. He, you see in the 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 film he's a bit of a maniac you know like <laughs> um but anyways I, as soon as i met him another you know barn on fire we just we're still friends i just saw him last night in garden grove yeah. um so once he sort of just shattered my idea of the stereotypical nail tech like i knew i was on another journey and it was important for me culturally i live in new york there's not a lot of vietnamese people you see in the film i was not connected to my my heritage but i still deeply care about how we're implicated in things and you know what's going on with with my generation so yeah yeah it was a journey right and i like that you interview both male and female subjects and got you know a very gendered perspective about the nail industry and talked a little bit about the representations of uh, or the the kinds of ideas that this is a feminized labor kind of labor and that men are you know, by association, um, feminized percent. Like oh, yeah. Right. Yeah. But there are a lot of male nail technicians. Ton. Yeah. And I think also I don't speak the language. And, um, you know, Vietnamese people can be kind of reserved. Like, what are you doing up in here trying to film me? So I certainly mm -hmm. didn't go into a nail salon, like, with my camera out, like, ah, what's going on? Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. I feel like I interviewed a ton of men, and subsequently I've met a lot of amazing women who would have been perfect in this film, especially for that intergenerational voice. But, you know, that's the sequel. Yeah. Um, I don't know, maybe because I have brothers, too, and my dad is the Vietnamese one. I don't know. Like, I just kind of, I'm always talking to men in this film, but I implicitly knew it all comes from the Vietnamese women, okay? <laughs> we all Don't get that. it twisted, it's, yeah. It's not a secret. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, you Vietnamese man would tell you different. I know, I know. <laughs> it's still a patriarchy, folks. It is. 
Um, but so I wonder if there have has been ha, uh, any studies on the effects of um, these health effects, these harmful health effects on the male technicians, because we hear a lot about women and miscarriages mm. and pregnancy issues, but I just wonder if they've been affected. Our, the studies that we've been involved with have mostly all um, looked at the health effects on women and um, the breast cancer is reproductive. But I think that there are the non-reproductive specific health impacts that would impact men, which include like the respiratory um, illnesses, skin rashes and irritations, um, eye, you know, irritations, mm -hmm. throat, and then also even the ergonomic issues. So like from the repetitive motion, um, bending over, leaning over to do pedicures, um, most, I mean, most of our members are women, and so that's those are the who, who the folks that are, that we that have talked to us about their health issues. And so, how do you, what do you think the state of the industry is right now? Is there a lot of awareness about these harmful effects, and do you think um, there's going to be further legislation about? Or, or is there going to be any effort to try to regulate the industry a little bit more? Mm -hmm. I think right now in Washington, D.C., the, the focus is deregulation. So if anything, we have a lot that we're mm -hmm. fighting against um, or just not actively engaged with, just really waiting for the tides to shift again. Um, we used to have close relationships with folks in D.C. Um, when the uh, White House initiative on, a on APIs used to be around and was more active, we actively talked with and met with FDA, EPA, OSHA, Department of Labor um, almost on an annual basis. And um, since the new administration has come forward, we haven't met with anybody. Actually, no, I met with the new director of the White House Initiative on, on White, um, APIs, and she, told, she talked about how she wanted to deregulate. That's, that was her focus. And so um, here in California, that's been our focus really is just with our state-based um, bills, but we have um, passed three bills in the last four years that actually focus on addressing the health and safety of the industry. And so it's been really incredible experience for us, not just for um, to be able to make widespread change to impact hundreds of thousands of workers in California, but also for um, our members and the folks that we work with to go to Sacramento themselves and to actively engage with policymakers to um, meet decision makers that really support their health, their well-being, their workers' rights, um, and how they're treated. And so uh, I think our leadership uh, development programming has been really key as a way to build the capacity of folks in the industry to make the change and to see that they actually do have power. Um, and it's been really, par it's been really important to um, see the evolution and so I think the state of the industry now is um, it's changing it's growing and one thing that we're um, we're in the middle of a three-day staff retreat right now and it happens to be here in LA and so we were just talking about today what does the future of the industry look like and what we're seeing are um, you know the refugee folks who came here and established the industry are retiring 
Mm-hmm. Um, they're selling their salons. Their kids are grown and they're ready to move on. Mm-hmm. Um, and like Fook was like Fook was saying, you know, when you asked Fook in the film, um, do you want your children to go into this industry or would you give this, this salon to your kids? And he was kind of like, well, yes and no, like, not, you know, and um, there are actually, we're seeing uh, the 2.0 generation more and more actually are starting to enter the industry and wanting to open up salons or redo their salon in a way that is more up to date with current standards, um, using different products, using different marketing, um, more with a business model that mm-hmm. their parents didn't have or, or haven't didn't utilize when they opened up their small mom and pop shops. And so that's something that we're seeing more of. There's more of the mobile salon that's coming up. Um, I think the rise of social media has really impacted the industry as well. Um, And in places like New York, the geography, um, not the geography, but the the ethnic breakdown of folks who work in the industry looks really different from the rest of the country too. So that's something to take into consideration. So there are a lot of shifts happening that I think us as an organization, we need to um, look at and um, predict and really shape and shift our upcoming work. Do you have anything to add to that as you see it? future of the industry, state oh, of the industry? Yeah, um, yeah uh, I, I really see Latino people, Latina women getting into it more. Um, mm-hmm. I live in New York, so it's the only place I've ever been to where the Asian market is not run by Vietnamese people. It's Chinese in Brooklyn. It's owned by Korean in Manhattan. Mm-hmm. Staffed by the poly women, also um, Latina women. But I've seen salons in Brooklyn all women and then uh, and one of their husbands who's like managing slash doing nails you know I'm like this is a really interesting format because it looks just like a Vietnamese salon Mm -hmm. except y'all are Latina right Mm -hmm. Um, so maybe it doesn't belong to Vietnamese people maybe it's something um, that can be uh, that can be used for for other for newer immigrants and refugees Um, and will always be a part of it because we're so ingrained in the industry. But I think with us, you see the second generation going in more than Koreans. You didn't see the second generation of Koreans going into the nail biz. So that's why mm-hmm. you only really see Korean-owned salons in New York City and not really even in Boston anymore. But as the economy and you know people still getting laid off like Calvin all the time, it's a safety net for us. Even uh, guys who go to prison, mm-hmm. I've seen a lot of that. And it, you, know, you come out, it's not easy to get a job when you, you're an ex-con, um, but you can get trained at nails, go work at your auntie's salon. I've seen guys like that spring out and open their own salons, like Bob and his wife, you know? So that's another documentary I was kind of working on while I was making this film. Yeah. Um, so I just have one last question, and then we could open it up to Q&A with y'all. But um, it seems to me that one of your underlying um, ideas of the film is to do some coalition building. And I think it's so important right now as we uh, work towards social justice and solidarity. Um, 
do you think that that was what you wanted to, what you envisioned for the film and moving forward, do you think your work can speak to that uh, even more so? The idea that we need to build across <coughs> ethnicities, across our mm. uh, national histories and national resentments um, and try to build solidarity. Yeah, empathy for each other. Right. Uh, where was the Walmart shooting in Texas on the El border? Paso. El Paso. I just looked up that Walmart. I wanted to see if there was a nail salon in there, and there is. Yeah. There are regal nails in there. When I tried to call, I just rang and rang. Right. But, you I mean, that's just like a, that. right, they're all over the country. I've seen plenty of regals. Um, I don't know. That's just like a visual representation. You know, the guy, mm -hmm. the killer, was targeting Mexican-looking people, right? And here we are in the nail salon in the corner. You know, we have our own refugee history struggle. How does that connect with the world around us and the next group of immigrants and refugees, you know? Right. Um, that conversation just needs to flower more, I think, and people kind of like, oh, the older generation, we can't talk to them about this stuff. I don't mm -hmm. think that's true. I've seen my father change, and yeah. I think because of the work he did, he. He recognized that the discrimination that Latino laborers faced are like his, and people mistook him for Latino sometimes because he doesn't look stereotypically Vietnamese, I guess, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, empathy, building, yeah. right? Yeah. Lisa, do you think your collaborative does wants to do that kind of work or already doing yeah. that kind of coalition building? Yeah, we've been doing that work for a few years now, and we haven't... Um, we're going deeper into it more so and um, you know there are organizations that we work with where we have um, where they like for black women's organizations we work with one closely here in LA and they work they also look at this work as an environmental justice issue and that black hair products are very toxic and so we talk about how you know Vietnamese women working with nail products are also very toxic. So there's a lot of parallels there, and we've had um, events. We've had you know our members and their members connect, go to D.C. together, go to Sacramento together, and do the lobbying and see their connections and create organic and uh, create organic friendships from that. Um, in addition to those spaces and providing those spaces for our members, we actually. Um, thought it was really important after last year's, there was a series of anti-black um, violence in nail salons. And so it was really important for BW, um, Black Women for Wellness and for the collaborative to put out a solidarity statement together on why this was, um, you know, how we saw this as uh, white supremacy and how this is something that we need to continue to fight and how we are committed to working together as organizations to fight white supremacy and really support our communities to have more um, salt, more racial, trying to de diminish racial tensions, increase understanding um, and be in support of one another as communities and as um, women of color organizations. And so that's something we're continuing to do with BWW, um, and we really stand in solidarity with one, with them and what they're doing, and recognizing that it's not just the hairstylist and the manicurist, but also the customers, 
and the manicurist as well. And so we need to take those leaps to have those discussions, brings our, bring our members together. And um, it's not just a one-time thing. We can't talk about anti-blackness um, in one conversation. So it's really having a series of discussions and committing ourselves our, as an organization to, to look at a nail salon as a potential site of healing as a potential site of racial healing because mm -hmm. all women of color go to the nail salon and um, are intimate with each other and their hands and their feet. And so it really, um, we want to be able to work with folks and talk about really sh shift hearts and minds of our members and of folks in the broader community um, to see that this is a this could be a really sacred space for healing too, and I think that the mm -hmm. film is really important to bring to light the history, you know, of Mantrap, Mantrap. yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. and how that actually started. And so um, we're really excited. The film is um, has subtitles in Vietnamese. Uh, I still need funding for that. I just screened it yesterday at Garden Grove Library, and it was important that it was in Vietnamese, you know? So I'm like, okay, yeah. use the subtitle version, right? But it was like, it was an SD proxy. The titles had no drop shadow. They were mm -hmm. moving sometimes. So, you know, I need help. But that's my dream, is to give a subtitle version for free to all the salons, because they all have HDTV at this point, a lot of them stream, you know? Yeah. And it's not something like you have to sit and watch in a theater. You could be doing nails and reading the subtitles. And of course the client is watching it too, you know? So respect That's me, idea. you know? This right. is, right, yeah. Distribution. So I've definitely seen women being abused inside the salon as well, you mm -hmm. know? Um, it goes both ways, yeah. Because we don't understand each other, right. but we're the same. Um, so, but on that note, um, Speaking of hearts and minds, I'd like to hear what your thoughts are and um, if you have any questions for Adele or Lisa. Yeah, I just saw Charlie yesterday at the Garden mm -hmm. Grove uh, screening. She came in full, Al Yai. <laughs> she brought us like beautiful flowers. Because mm -hmm. actually a writer saw the trailer and found her and write a, wrote a book about her through like years of interviews called Manny Petty. We can talk about it later. Because um, her refugee story is just harrowing and then how she came and did all that is incredible. Um, but anyways, it was a really special Q&A. It lasted longer than the film and everybody just stayed and they're like, Garden Grove Vietnamese young people, and you know my favorite screening besides the screening of course, um, it's just like it was in a public library, you know. Um, yeah, that's what I'm trying to do with real Vietnamese people. Actually, work in the salon. Yeah. Yeah. I had heard about Tippy Hedren and the nail industry originating with what she did with Hope Village. But I never knew about Man Trap, so yeah, nobody did. But I mean, that's the role of the filmmaker. That's the role of the storyteller. You go ask the questions that other people aren't going to ask. You know. Uh, we have another question here. Um, 
for me where I just felt like um, the line that was, it wasn't the first time that the grade lines have been broken when we talk about Asian art that was heartbreaking. Um, and my question is about um, the narration. So I was wondering if you could talk more about what it was like having yourself as a character in the doc and why you made that choice. Hmm. Are you working on a film right now? Um, not right now, but this is a question that comes up a lot, like how am I going to tell my story? And back when I went to film school, they were like, don't put your voice in it. It makes it subjective, even though some of my favorite filmmakers put their voice into their documentaries. Um, I think it's kind of just like part of my aesthetic choices because of why I'm so passionate about a story has a lot to do with who I am. I'm finding in all of my work. And I wanted to weave in the contemporary... Vietnamese person with where we came from, you know. Um, yeah, I think it's just something I'm drawn to, right? And I try to uh, tell young filmmakers, so just write as much as you can about the film before you start shooting and while you're shooting and write the voiceover, even if you're not going to use it because it's going to help you build out your story structure. So a lot of uh, stuff that I wrote in story structure is in the voiceover. And this is... You know, it's such a it's it's not like I'm um, following one character's journey. It's a historical film, so it's still ongoing. I can't answer a lot of the questions. They're ongoing, and that was difficult in making this film. And you need a, a narrator to navigate you, you know, or else you get lost in the weeds or not quite get the reference to this, you know. Yeah. Marco and then Evan. Yeah, um, I thought the use of the animation bits was just really fun, and I liked that there was real like juxta juxtaposition, or at least like a break of like talking about petty, like talking about family, and then going into segregating segue into all the topics for this animation. Where did that idea come from, and how did you? Yeah, yeah, I mean, I always wanted to do that, um, partly for the break, but also that's kind of how I think about nails. Like, <laughs> welcome to my brain. Um, you know, when you're making these films, everything's a struggle. But I live in New York, and I have talented friends. So my friend, illustrator, um, uh, Debbie Allen, she, she did the illustrations, and then we got another friend to animate it. So, you know, that took years. Because <laughs> you try to get free stuff from people. It's just, you know, they're your homie, you're like, Homie, I gotta get the film done. And at the very end, I was I was animating, okay? So you can really do a lot when you put your mind to it. I used to do like little web gifts too for my previous life as a web producer. Um, yeah, but it was just always there for me. I know I wanted to incorporate the social media, but not in just like screen grabs of whatever. You know, I wanted that to come alive a little bit more. Um, the people that I know in the nail industry who are like influencers, they're, they're super passionate about the art, you know, um, and social media has changed the industry tremendously. That's why you see Rihanna up in there, because she really sparked the whole stiletto nail thing. Yeah. <laughs> Love Riri. <laughs> Love her. Hi. Um, I'm kind of a cultural tourist uh, in, from the perspective of understanding nail salons, but I did grow up at the border of Fountain Valley and Westminster, so uh, uh, I had a lot of Vietnamese uh, friends whose parents had nail salons growing up. Um, one thing that you had mentioned uh, 
is that you said you said something about you know uh, support this is the patriarchy after all, and Lon, you were talking about the feminization of labor. But it seems to me that in the film there's something more complex going on. Um, that there there might be this feminization of labor, but there's also this entrepreneurial spirit that that kind of runs through that I think is really important and and unique to this particular industry um, that you know proves to be quite successful for a lot of families. And so I was I'm interested in that more utopian side of perhaps like. Um, some kind of, I don't know how to describe it except to say maybe a subversion of the sort of patriarchy that you describe where you have this space where women can be empowered. I think Vietnamese women just subvert that all day long. I mean, I think it's part of their DNA, you know, um, being small business women, taking so. care of their families. And, like, that's just, you know, Vietnamese w men do follow their women right but it's still a patriarchy so that is the you know that's the thing but I've never met stronger women in my life than Vietnamese women and mm -hmm. and just like um ingenious in a way you know oh parking lot flower just fell off my head <laughs> um but you know I'm gonna try this out see if it works you know and then I'm gonna go do the thing put the thing to the thing oh and I'm gonna employ my husband and <laughs> yeah, make him the manager <laughs> yeah but that's like an empowering mode so uh, what I was going to ask is that um, in, in that space of potential empowerment uh, that operates at these complex levels uh, I know just from my own experience and my friends that the beauty industry is also this space where LGBTQ people can um, also be empowered in different ways I didn't see it in this film at all um, do you feel that there is a space in the research that you did for LGBTQ individuals to... Um, is there a grant there that I can apply for? No. <laughs> I think um, a lot of grants you could apply for. Yeah, I, I know. Yeah. Um, I mean, of course. Of course, there's just gay people everywhere. So you can be part of the industry. And, you know, you might be more attracted to nails that way. It's, you know, it's just... Yeah, um, it, are Vietnamese nail salons a comfortable space for LGBTQ people to come all the time? No. So but are I, they paying customers? Yes. No, I think more <laughs> the people working in the industry. Like, mm. So what you described just fits more into the, the model of patriarchy then in the sense that uh, that type of expression is, is not accepted in, in the nail salons you went to? It is. I mean, it, it, everything is kind of, you know, you feel it out, you know. You could go to one bad nail salon and then down the street is a good nail salon. I found that, you know. I just stopped by randomly on Slauson because I asked if they did dip nails, you know, just mm -hmm. queen nails. And uh, they said they did, but they didn't. So I'm like, okay, I just got my nails done anyways. And she did an amazing job. It's acrylic, you know. She did an amazing job. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so speaking <coughs> of the cultural... Um, um, attitudes uh, in this space, there's a lot to unpack. Um, but I think it has to do with something that the, one of the subjects said, which is um, when the men were uh, are, came here, they were a little bit lost. There's mm -hmm. um, a Vietnamese, no, I'm sorry, a sociologist by the name of Nasli Cabria who talks about how er, uh, refugee families, it was the women who who felt like they had to, mm -hmm. what she called is um, put together a family tightrope 
a patchwork of different resources because often the Vietnamese men who were in the army, who were a part of the, the um, who worked under U.S. military occupation during the war, felt emasculated coming to the U.S. and had to do feminized labor, uh, quote unquote feminized labor, so that the women were um, more entrepreneurial. And they're it, also seen as a threat. A man, a woman can slip under the radar and be doing mm -hmm. this whole business thing and maybe they won't set it on fire, you know? Right. Like, that's the real, you do what you have to do to survive and Vietnamese women have always kind of done that. They always navigate in the background like that, you yeah. know, beyond, way beyond the nail industry. Speaking um, as a Vietnamese American woman, I am a badass. <laughs> I come from a long lineage of badass <laughs> women. Um, but so it is also uh, very uh, culturally and historically specific to Vietnam because women are seen as the generals of the house. And so they manage the household and often the business, but behind um, the scenes, supposedly. Uh, so there is a lot there. And in terms of uh, queerness within the space, I, uh, it's a more act, um, felt and performed. Um, and that also has some lineage from Vietnam because um, queer folks are often seen as much more adept to be in this industry. So they're more accepted within um, these spaces. Um, so it's very stereotypically heterosexist and patriarchal at the same time, but there is a space for um, a kind of performance of queerness in and that. Some of the best nail techs are men and queer, and right. queer women, I don't know, but um, you know, there's people out there like want their nails done by a Vietnamese man, you know. Yeah. Yeah, we've actually found like through our outreach, um, more men are entering the industry and they tend to have a specific role in the salon. So they are, they do more of the nail art. They're maybe requested to be doing the nail art. Um, they I'm to sorry to interrupt, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm just so, that's my own bias too. It's like how people are presenting. There's 20, plenty of lesbian women who do nails and I just wouldn't know. And it's like, even when I'm looking at a man, like how do I know if he's gay or straight? It's like I'm looking at, you know, mm -hmm. so I'm still, of putting my overlay on that whole situation totally there has to be lesbian women that do nails that, you know yeah but so the the how how i am part of this is or witness to it is because i talk to people so i guess that's one of the ways that we could um know more about the people who work and who are part of the nail salon scene both here in vietnam i think it's fascinating um, but we have time for, I think, one more question. Oh, two more. I can answer anything after, too. That's cool. Okay. Um, two more I questions. Question. I was just really impressed by, like, all the people that you were able to showcase. Um, so I'm just curious to learn more and hear more about sort of what was your process in, like, identifying the people that you wanted to talk mm. to, and how did you get them to say yes? Because you mm. kind of alluded to this a bit. Um, people, you know, Vietnamese people in particular could be a little bit conservative with what they want to share and mm. uh, their comfort level with being filmed. So I was just really impressed by, like, how you put that together and wanted to hear more about that. Well, you know, Kelvin's a co-producer on the film. He's been in the industry for over 25 years at this point. So there's that, you know. It's all about your relationships with people. Um, yeah. It's all about relationships, really. And if they... If they get excited, if the, your, sub, your subject is excited about what you're doing, then they'll share, you know? And if you have, like, a 
hot little teaser you can show them on your phone. You're like, this is a thing. I'm like, oh yeah. Because the Vietnamese people, when you get, when you actually talk about it, not all of them, but some are really excited about it. You know, nobody's asked them, nobody's told them that. So that's why I'd really love to film them be in salons. You know, on rotation with the Paris by night, just like <laughs> always rolling. Why not? Big fan of Paris by night here. Yeah. So. Um, okay. Last question. Oh, and Elisa, I just make a quick announcement too. Yeah. After the question. Or I can do okay, that. last question and then uh, announcements. Okay. Oh, so I just had a question. So I'm currently I'm doing a research essay project on stereotypes, and I chose the stereotype as Vietnamese as male technicians because personally I am half Vietnamese. I was born and raised in Sacramento, California, mm. so there's like a, there's little little Saigon, there's little little Vietnamese home, and I'm super interested in learning more about my community and kind of my own personal background, and in choosing this um, stereotype to research about, the, the question I have for you guys is that, what do you guys think of this stereotype, kind of like what are the positives and negatives about it? Do you guys think this stereotype prevents Vietnamese Americans from finding employment in different areas, or do you kind of think, mm. perceive the stereotype as more of a springboard for Vietnamese Americans? I mean, I think all we can do is work it to be that springboard, you know, and not be so affected by it. Um, an antidote about Angela Johnson, I guess, is that she grew up in San Jose around Vietnamese people. She has, you know, little nephew who's half Vietnamese, so it's not so much she's laughing at us, you know, she picked up on how we talk. Um, yeah, it's interesting what you say, like, does it pre prevent us? Because, you know, like, the Mijong Salongs, they like to say that, oh, these Vietnamese people, da-da-da, they're going to do chop shop nails on you. So, yeah, that is a barrier between perhaps a non-English-speaking Vietnamese woman who just does pedicure getting a job at a higher-paying salon, you know, that charge more for the service. For sure, I can see how it's a detriment. Um, but also now the stereotype, most people know is like, if they're not Vietnamese, then I don't really want them, or if they're not Asian, I don't know if I want to get my nails done by them. The price is not going to be right, and they're not going to do a good job. And, you know, that could be problematic, or it could be something that you work off that stereotype then, you know? But, I mean, don't allow people to talk about us like that. I encounter so much racism online, you know, it's like the last bastion of anti-Vietnamese sentiment, anti-Asian sentiment comes out. Um, you know, whenever a, a nightmare salon story goes viral. So people would um, seek you out to ask you your opinion or? No, just they just trolls on threads, you know, just the stuff that they write. It's like, wow, you're really saying this right now. Right. Yeah. Um, okay, well, so it's not ed educated. I also am not like, oh, go yeah. F you, da -da -da, I don't get involved. In I put a link to my film on there, educate yourself. And some of the, actually, sometimes they do. They're like, oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know. I guess work with people where they're at. If you right. have the energy. If they're just energy vampires, then goodbye. Right. There's so much work to do. <laughs> the struggle continues. Yes, the marathon. Right. The marathon continues. <laughs> What's the sequel that you were talking about? Or like, can you tell us more about that? Um, the global nail story going all around the world because we are everywhere. Um, mm -hmm. So I just... Australia too. I was talking about that in the interview. So that um, you know, I've been putting out feelers for that for a long time. Um, again, uh, recidivism, Vietnamese community, how uh, you know, ex-cons have gotten into the nail game, um, and that extends beyond just Vietnamese people to the project that I'm thinking of in Oakland with Elaine Brown, and um, 
just the story of how Vietnamese people get trained in Vietnam to come like work here as soon as they get off the plane. That's a whole that's a whole thing. Oh, and also Cardi B's nail tech in the Bronx. I have her permission. I have to like find she's oh, she's traveling. Jenny Jenny nail Jenny Bling Jenny Bui. Um, her <laughs> husband is a Vietnamese guy though, and he has a fascinating story. So. I yeah. was waiting for her to come up in the film, but well, uh, she popped off after this film was in the can. <laughs> she's actually Khmer, but um, she oh. speaks Vietnamese. And that's the thing about the Bronx is like a lot of Cambodian women mm -hmm. that I show you that do nails and own nail salons, not just working inside of them. And maybe that happens in Long Beach, happens in Philly a little bit yeah. too. Yeah, we could just go on and on for days. Bobby, around? Where are we eating? Oh yeah, we where are we eating? We have yeah. a kitchen. Yeah, so part of our work is really looking and recognizing, seeing the manicures as a whole person. They're not just somebody, a Vietnamese woman that does nails. And so for us, that includes they are a parent, um, a mother, a partner, a um, low-wage worker. Uh, also an immigrant and a refugee and or a refugee and so um, some of our work also includes immigrant rights work as well and one of the campaigns that we're working on is around um, public charge and saying no to public charge and so um, we brought uh, some of our some of my staff are here um, and what we've been doing is doing some education around public charge how it impacts immigrant refugee communities um, and it's something that is sensitive um, because it's asking folks to look at um, immigrants and public benefits and when we talk to some of our members you know exactly I, we don't I don't want them to know how much I make because I need health insurance I mean that's the reality right but part of it too is some of our members um, may tend lean towards being more conservative in their ideas around some of these policies that we're pushing and so um, really we are trying to move the needle with our members as well those who lean more who lean more conservative um, but I will turn it over to Mike or Vu to talk a little bit about public charge and some of our um, uh, voter engagement work. Um, real quick, and first kid. No, Hi, Mike. How are you? No, we met. Uh, remember? Yeah. On, on um, but yes, as a collaborative, we've been um, part of some solidarity work on groups um, against public charge. So if, if you're not familiar with public 